the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What happens when the church is not a political diverse place? And then we're joined by Stephanie Davis of the Miracle League. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160. Hope for your life alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today on this Wednesday afternoon. Aubrey, how are you? I think your family left you or some of your family. Like what's going on here? Yes, my uh what day is it today? Is it Wednesday? Wednesday. You just Wednesday. said that, didn't you? Yeah, yesterday my uh my oldest son and my husband left for a trek through the Colorado Trail in the mountains. My husband does this every year as kind of a Sabbath trip. I mean, he goes a lot. So let's be honest, he goes more than once a year. But this is kind of his journey is to like, over the past several years, hike several segments of the Colorado Trail. And his goal is to eventually finish it. He's on like seventh or eighth year of doing this. And I think it I think 2015 or 2016 is when he started, whatever that math is. Um, And so last year was the first time he took our oldest son and he's taken him again with some other dads and and son. So my husband is kind of acting like a trail guide and a hiking, you know, leader or whatever. So um, it's funny because, you know, Kevin's a visionary kind of futurist type guy, and he's not very organized. I mean, it, he's not disor- <laughs> he's not disorganized, but he's not detail oriented. That's what I should say. He's not deep. But like on these trips, I've never seen the man like make lists, make charts, put packing supplies together, organize things, reorganize them, tell other people what to do. So he's like <laughs> leading this like masterclass with dads and sons. And yeah, I know it, it's kind of fun to see, but anyway, yes. That, and the hardest part is because they're in the wilderness, like I won't hear from them until they yes. start descending down the mountain. And so your mama and your wife heart is kind of like, Oh, it's an exercise in trust. I'll say that in both my husband and in Jesus. <laughs> I love the fact that your husband is such an outdoorsman, such a mountain guy, such a trail guy, and has always lived his entire life in Illinois. (laughs) You know what's really funny about that? Like, to be honest, is like when we were first married, I was was always like, let's get out of here. Like, Illinois, Midwest, like, let's go somewhere. And he is, he's such an adventurer, but he is a homebody through and through. Like, he was born in Detroit, but he spent his whole life in this area and just like, I don't know. He, I think he's more of a like hometown guy than, than you'd expect from him. Yep. There does come a point where you're like, well, where's my family? So, you know, you want to be near family. You want to be near friends and what yeah. you know. So yeah. I yep. guess as long as he gets his times out. So, well, okay. Well, what are you doing? I guess you got your other two boys home with you. So yeah, I've got my other two boys. I'm going to try to think of some fun things to do with them and, uh, and I have to work. I've, you know, I'm not on summer vacation. So a little Somebody's bit. Like, got to support their husband's travels. Seriously. <laughs> Somebody's got to pay for these Colorado trips. So mama's got to bring home the bacon. You so, know what I mean? Somebody's <laughs> got to allow him to be 
Your husband's living the right life. He's living yeah. the good life. He married a good, he married a good woman. I remind him of that. I'm like, not a lot of wives would be supportive of this. I I rem- <laughs> okay. It loses its appeal when you have to say, I remind him of that. <laughs> he married a good woman and I tell him that every day. I tell him every day. I am the Proverbs 31 woman, son. You better be thankful. <laughs> be thankful for your Proverbs. Your P31 woman. There you go. <laughs> uh, well, you're, we're glad that you're with us. Aubrey, I read a fascinating thing from Ryan Burge. He's, you might remember him. He's been on our show multiple times. He's that. like, yeah he's like the statistics guy right oh, okay. like he uh it kind of like barna right like he will yes. you read his stuff you follow him on twitter you're gonna get church statistics stuff i love a good uh, statistic guy exactly with that in mind let me just read to you he did some there's a much larger study but uh kind of how the way he wrapped up this study that he just put out the other day uh let me read this to you he says uh These results that he just had are hard to ignore and should sound some major alarms for any person of faith who is concerned about the large state of American society. Increasingly, religion has become the enclave for those who have lived a, quote, proper life, college degree, middle class income, married with children. If you check all those boxes, the likelihood of you regularly attending church is about double the rate of people who don't. This is also troubling for American democracy as well. Religion at its best is a place where people from a a variety of economic, social, racial, and political backgrounds can find common ground around a shared faith. It's a place to build bridges to folks who are different than you. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. it looks like American religion is not at its best. Instead, it's become a hospital for the healthy, an echo chamber for folks who did Mm -hmm. everything, quote, right, which means that it is seeming less and less inviting to those who did life another way. Do I think that houses of worship have done this on purpose? Generally speaking, no, but they also haven't actively refuted this narrative. There's a ton more here, but I feel like this sums up what we've been feeling, right? Like echo, he talks about echo chamber of politics, that there's this expectation even in the Christian world now that you've lived a good life to be a part of the church. Like all of this stuff that he says, I think his conclusion is correct that this is uh, a troubling sign for the church in general. You know, it's a question. So somebody asked me, you know, right in the heart of COVID when there's so much political turmoil, there's so much turmoil in general. And somebody asked me, do you need to vote the same as your pastor? Oh, wow. And I said, absolutely not. Like, in fact, I, I think it's probably better for the church if there's, you know, diversity politically in the church. But that was a real concern for them. And they were asking, you know, when you kind of asked the question under the question, they were really asking, like, can I be at a church where I vote differently than my pastor? Right. And and, you know, there is a question, should you know who your pastor votes for? I think a little of that depends on the context and the culture of the church, et cetera. Um, but even if you, let's say you did for some reason find out who your pastor votes for, can you be at a church where you vote differently? Can you be at a church where you are sitting side by side in the pews, worshiping with somebody who you know, you know, voted for a different candidate than you did the night before or whatever? And I think the answer has to be yes, ideally. Yeah. Like I, I think that Ryan Burge is right that that 
that diversity matters, not just because it's like, quote, a popular, cool, woke thing to do. It matters because that's a reflection of the character of God. Like God is so Mm. multifaceted and we cannot bear his image singularly. We need all of our our ethnic diversity, our political diversity, our perspectives, our gender diversity. Like we need all of it in order to best reflect the multifaceted glory of God. And so when we become monolithic and we become one perspective, which is really easy to do, by the way. It is. um, Really easy to do. Then I think we're in danger of not becoming people who are helping each other more and more become the shape of Jesus, right? Because then we'll all stay the same. We won't sharpen, soften each other's edges and that kind of thing. Um, so it's, it, it, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. And I wonder how, I think the question ultimately is like, how much is it on the church leaders to really push for this kind of thing? Or do you right. just let it happen because that's what's happening culturally? You know, I, I'm, I'm just kind of curious about churches where it's done well. I think Tim Keller's church, it probably was really done well. Right, right. Um, I think how this did that is happen? A, yeah, I think this is a result of something we've talked a lot, of, a lot about, and that is uh, when when you view politics as an issue of good versus evil, mm. then you don't want I'll use air quotes here, evil people in your church. Like that's to be warred against. And there are things that are evil in our culture that we're to be warring against. But when it is, if somebody votes this way, they're evil. Well, then, then you're going to not be excited about them sitting next to you in a pew. Yeah. Yeah, Um, absolutely. And I heard this from a lot of people, especially who moved out of Illinois around the, you know, COVID times and moved, say down to Tennessee. I remember talking to one person who moved away like, Everybody yeah. I go to church with, it's so refreshing. They all think the same way. And I'm yeah. being like, that would actually be kind of fu- like, like comforting, but I don't totally. think that's the point. Like, it's not the point in, um, yeah, I think this gets back to, we've made politics and we've made the culture wars a good versus evil thing. And, uh, we want to be on the side of good. And if instead, you know, if you vote Democrat, I vote Republican, you're middle class, I'm mm-hmm. upper middle class, all of these things. But we can worship under the lordship of Jesus. That feels yeah. like a picture of heaven. That feels like yeah. how it's going to be. But according to Ryan Burge's stats here, we're heading in the wrong direction. Fascinating. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how the church continues to process that. Coming up next, a new proposed law up in the state of Michigan, but but kind of being mimicked in some other states, I think should have some of us, especially pastors, a little bit worried. I'm going to describe it next year on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, not yet on TikTok or any of the others. Uh, We've made TikTok jokes for a long time, and it's just not going to happen. No, I just don't right? get TikTok. Like, I, I mock TikTok that, that, that I feel like I would be going against myself if I got on it. Yeah, I don't really mock it. I just, like, feel overwhelmed by it. Like, it feels intimidating to me. Like You ever get on oh. Be Real? Do you do Be Real with your friends? So I did for a while and then it just started to annoy me. Like it would go off at like the most inopportune times. And I'm like, I don't have time for this right now. So I, I posted on Be Real the other day at the airport because it went off when I was flying home from Seattle. But that was the first time in like weeks I've probably yeah. been on that. And then I've taken probably like months. So I'm not consistent on it, but I am, I have the app. Yeah. You're on it with I your gr- family, right? 
well, that's it. But like half my family has stopped doing it. Like, yeah, it kind of is annoying. I don't like being told when to post. <laughs> it's kind of annoying. You know, like I want to post when I feel like posting, not when I don't want social to. media to annoy me. And, I don't want social uh, media to dictate my calendar. <laughs> and that's what B-Real does. Wonderful. Wonderful. It's getting away. It's taking away your independence and that's enough. Yeah, for that's it. It's a, stop Speaking. controlling my freedom. Speaking of taking away your independence and freedom. Oh, hey. <laughs> so well done, segue. So, Aubrey, I, again, I, I want to say that every now and then you read sites where things come across and you're like, is it really that bad? And you're trying to navigate. So uh, with that said, uh, I read this article about a proposed, quote, hate speech law in, Mich in Michigan that some people are saying threatens First Amendment rights. Uh, a bill moving through the Michigan state legislature would make it easier for prosecutors to bring felonious, quote, hate crime charges against dissident speech. There's a lot of work to be done on this. There's a lot. It may not pass all of this stuff. But what okay. struck me there is just the general trajectory of our culture mm. towards policing speech. Yeah. All right. So uh, whether this law goes through or not, this law they're basically saying is. The proposal is if you can if you can say that I, I deeply hurt you by mm -hmm. something I said or something I posted, I can be prosecuted for. Yeah. Right. Which raises a lot of questions uh, for teachers, for pastors, yeah. for radio hosts, for yeah, uh, for just people on the playground. Right. We grew up and I know it's it's not actually a true statement, but we grew up with the old sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Right. Right. So it does whether this exact law passes or not, it does feel like, Aubrey, there is a cultural move towards uh, the 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 government policing speech and saying, you can't say that. You can't say that. If someone's hurt, you're in trouble. All these kinds of things. Is this a good move? Like it, it doesn't feel like a good move. This well, doesn't feel like a good trajectory. It's, I mean, it's hard for me to believe that this kind of thing is ever taken seriously in a place where we value free speech so much. But I, I will say culturally, like you know, without any legalities, like we do see this in cancel culture, this kind of thing, like someone says the wrong thing and they're canceled. I think the hard part for me with this conversation is always, okay, then who is the arbiter of right. hate? Like who determines what hate speech is and what it isn't is if it, if it boils down to like, well, you just disagree with me. Like that's obviously problematic. If it if it becomes about our certain religious stances or political stances or convictions, and suddenly we're not allowed to say them anymore, that's problematic, right? And right, I feel like it's it's interesting to me, even as a, like a semi very low key small scale public communicator. In a way, I haven't before. I'm second guessing, like, oh, are you? No, I probably shouldn't have used that word. Like, there are even, I mean, it's it's funny, even some things in books that I'm like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said it that way. You know, just in a way that I haven't before. And I don't want to be plagued by that or live by that. And again, I don't have like millions of people that are watching and following. So it's not like it really. It, it, you know, like some of the people you've seen it happen on a larger scale is wow. But it, I, I think it, it's this strange thought that is 
really? Like, would the government be the ones determining what is considered hate and violent speech and what isn't? How do they come up with that criteria? Um, yeah, they it said feels under like the people's proposed... nightmares, right? Yeah. It feels like one of those dystopian nightmares. They said under the proposed statute, in quote, intimidate and harass can mean whatever the victim or the authorities want them to mean. Uh, there's no really clear standard. And so you can see kind of a slippery slope here. Sure. Uh, how does this affect us? Do you think it's hard to project into the future, but a decade from now, two decades, let's say you and I are still pastoring. Yeah. yeah. Like you can, I used to think that this was like just kind of dystopian and people were like yeah. way overly scared. You can really see a world where, where pastors in the, even the United States could get in trouble for what we say, especially around very specific subjects. Yes, I I think you can definitely see that world. Um, and then that's when I think there's a choice to be made where you look yep. to other countries who've experienced like actual persecution, which we haven't in our country, um, where you go, okay, do we go underground? Do we go quiet? And we, we keep saying the things we feel like we need to and stay faithful or pastor, communicator, radio host, et cetera. Do you begin to mark how you speak a little bit more and yeah. couch some of the things you're saying and avoid certain topics, except for maybe in private conversation and not in public forum, you know, and it's, it's certainly, it will certainly be interesting to see what the future holds. I think this is like a new, this is new territory and it feels like it's moving really fast. I, I think the other thing, like as I was just saying that, let me just pose this. Sometimes some of these really hard conversations, I'm going to say especially around sexuality, uh, identity, gender, um, they actually need to happen relationally and not necessarily be the the pastor going, it doesn't mean don't teach the Bible. Like, don't please no one hear me say that. But what I'm saying is some of these issues are identity questions and relationship questions that need to happen one-on-one. And so Mm. only looking for a bright side in this scenario, like let's say it goes as terrible as it possibly could. Okay. The alternative is now you're forced to actually have one-on-one conversations with people. And and I don't know, is the government policing that? I don't know. But perhaps – Perhaps that puts us in a, a more interesting place. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there to see if there's a bright side. And the messiness and some of the beauty of our Constitution is uh, if you're going to have freedom of, you know, freedom of speech, it needs to be freedom of speech for all. That means for you, need to be, yeah. you need to be okay with people saying things that you really disagree vehemently with, don't like, not yeah. just disagree with, but they like make your blood curdle. Yeah, uh, yeah. We've said the same thing about freedom of religion. It's only Absolutely. there's only freedom of a religion if the religions that you disagree with have the same freedoms in our culture, in our yeah. country. And yeah, you know. So, so with that said, we should be fighting for the freedom of other religions. We should be fighting for the freedom of speech of the people that we, we think are despicable yeah. people, <laughs> like right. that are right uh, bad people. But yeah, it's. It doesn't feel like we're on a trajectory towards more freedom. It feels. I like, agree. I I agree. You're right. It feels like we're on a trajectory of, you've got all the freedom in the world if it's the culturally accepted thing to be said or That's the culturally. A, yeah, and then who determines that, right? Like, I mean, that is just a wild, wild 
And I'm just not sure we as the church are necessarily on that side at the moment. So we shall see how it continues. Mm -hmm. Coming up next, excited to talk to Stephanie Davis. She's the vice president of a national program with the Miracle League. Uh, This is just a really cool thing. It has to do with baseball. So you know that I love baseball. (gasps) Hey! Uh, But more than that, it has to do uh, with helping people of all abilities be able to play baseball and enjoy it. So Stephanie Davis from the Miracle League is going to join us next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. I mean, lots of hard things in the world, lots of Mm -hmm. difficult conversations. But every now and then we could just bring on people who are really doing not just interesting things, but just wholesome, good Things And that's what we're going to do right now. We're excited to be joined by Stephanie Davis, Vice President of National Programs with something called the Miracle League. Stephanie, how are you doing today? Hello. Thank you yeah, so much for having me. So yeah, it's absolutely our you. pleasure. Great to have you with us. Let's start just big picture. What is the Miracle League? Uh, The Miracle League is an organization that provides the opportunity for individuals with disabilities, the opportunity to play baseball and be part of a team. It's so, so fantastic. I've been checking out some things at uh, MiracleLeague.com. Tell us how this even got started. Um, Going back to 2000, actually 1999 into 2000, a local family saw the need for an individual with um, a sibling of an individual that played youth baseball that was in a wheelchair and they saw the need that he wanted to be part of a team and wanted the opportunity to play. Um, so the idea really spread and the community built a all inclusive field so that kids could come out and all play together with any type of abilities. And from there it hit the national news um, with Ryan mm. Gumbel and Frank DeFord and um, the Rotary International helped us spread the word as well. And from there, many communities jumped on board and said, we want to build this in our own town, our own community for our own citizens. Um, and from there, over the past 23 years, we've spread from that one location here in Conyers, Georgia, to 325 locations across the country, a few wow. international as well. Oh, that's so fascinating. I know uh our listeners know this, Stephanie, like baseball with my son has been just tra- like <laughs> one of the most important things. Like I love it to this day. So I can't imagine what it is for like for these families. Can you just paint a picture of like you said special fields are made or the league like help walk us into what an actual league and a state a field even looks like? Sure. So over the years, we've kind of come up with this design where everything's inclusive from the time these families leave their car in the parking lot to um, coming into the complex, whether it be bathrooms, concessions, pavilions, um, and then ultimately onto our baseball field where they can play with no obstacles. Um, Everything is inlaid with a rubber or a turf surface. Um, Mm. So they can go everywhere from the, the dugouts, running the bases to the outfield to the infield with no obstacles, um, whether they have, you know, whatever their disability might be, um, being in a wheelchair or a walker or having any type of, um, you know, vision problems, any type of um, things that would keep them off of a typical baseball field. Yeah. Um, It's how our fields are designed. And then our programs are designed even more specific for that need, whether it be um, autism, sensory issues, Mm. visually impaired, um, all those different things come into play when we, we start the program. 
And uh, Stephanie, the Miracle Leagues are open players ages four and up of all abilities. Is there a way that children have to qualify? Like, how does that process actually work? Yeah, our, our motto is Miracle League's open for all ages and all abilities. Um, just depends on what location they're at and what, who they're partnered with, because we do partner with a lot of youth baseball, YMCAs, Parks and Recs. So depending on um, where they start, typically three or four years old and up, um, what we say is if you are not able to play on a typical youth baseball program, that you qualify for Miracle League. And that could be everything from a learning disability to ADHD, mm. um, all the way to kids with um, you know, Down syndrome, autism, yeah. spina bifida, whatever their diagnosis or special need is, they would be welcome to play in the Miracle League. Yeah. Awesome. Stephanie, I'm sure this is overwhelming for parents like who didn't mm. think this type of thing was possible. What are what are some of the stories you hear, the feedback you hear from moms and dads as they see their sure. kids play? Yeah, great. Question. Yeah, so I've been involved since 2001 um, where we started the second Miracle League in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Um, and a really cool story for me was when we were registering kids for that first season there, um, we had an adult, you know, we call him a kid because um, mentally he may have that capacity, but um, he was 30 some years old, six foot two, you know, 250 pounds. He, he walks out with his Braves outfit on. Um, he's got his hat and his jersey and he's got his bat and ball and he's throwing it up and down and walking on the field. And his mom looks at me in tears and she Aww. says, this is the first time that he stepped foot on a baseball field. And he's wow. Be so um, and that was the moment where we said, you know, this is open for all ages because yeah. you may be 50 years old and never had this opportunity. And we want you to be able to have that opportunity. Um, so the parents are so appreciative. You know, a lot of the dads come up to us and say, you know, when my child was born and with this diagnosis, I never dreamed I would be able to coach his baseball team. And mm. now we have that opportunity um, or to sit in the stands and cheer my kid on as they run, you know, around the bases and and make a home run or um, make a play in the field. We just never dreamed these possible. And now they're having that opportunity, um, not just as a player, but like you said, as a parent. Oh, so, so cool. I love hearing that. Stephanie, as the vice president of national programs, what does your work entail? So I work with the local communities. Um, we get hundreds of emails and calls a week from communities saying we want to build a Miracle League in our town. Um, so I, I consult with those local communities. Like we said, it could be an individual person. It could be a company. It could be um, a government agency like a city or county parks and rec. Um, a YMCA. We partner with Easter Seals, Goodwill, different organizations across the country that might either already be doing baseball or already service individuals with special needs and want to add this to what they're doing. Um, so what we do from our office is we consult with them. We provide them with a step-by-step -step manual of how to make this happen. Everything from putting your organization together, through designing the field, constructing the facility, and then also running the program. What we try to do is help them not recreate the wheel um, mm -hmm. and save a lot of time and resources from what we've learned over the past 20 some years. Um, and, you know, 325 locations. Yeah. Uh, and Stephanie, we'll end here. Uh, two questions. If someone's listening to this and they're like, I never knew that existed. Yeah. How do I find out where the closest one is for my child? Uh, and then secondly, I'm sure you guys need money. Can people who are like resonate with this and say, I want to be a part of this, where would they go? How would they get in touch with you? Absolutely. Um, you can find everything at MiracleLeague.com. 
You can find my contact information on there as well if you would like to look for a league in your area. Um, if you're looking to play, volunteer, or donate, please email me directly, and we'll hook you up with that local league, um, Stephanie at MiracleLeague.com. And um, if there's not a league in your area, we would love to try to connect one and, and get yeah. one started. So um, we'd love to hear from you, whether it's playing, donating, um, being a buddy. We need buddies all across the country for these individuals. So um, being a buddy is one of the most amazing jobs you can have. And I think the most rewarding as well um, for these teenage and adult kids to come out and be a buddy um, with one of our players and to be able to help bring the game of baseball to them is a pretty life-changing experience for these kids in these communities. Oh, that's great. You guys are really doing something uh, really important. We're glad that we could highlight it again. Stephanie Davis is the vice president of national programs with the Miracle League. Uh, We would encourage you to go check them out online. What was the website one more time where people can go? Uh, MiracleLeague.com. MiracleLeague.com. Stephanie Davis, uh, great work. We're really glad to get to learn a lot more about it. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for sharing our story. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. One of the things that we often tackle here is how does our faith in Jesus, how does our trust in a good God uh, not just continue, but even grow in the midst of the the inevitable hard times of life, right? Uh, How do we navigate the difficulties? Because Aubrey, Jesus himself said, in this world, you will have trouble, right? Like we're only, the most honest thing we can say to people is life is going to have trouble, right? Mm. Uh, Because it feels like there's theology out there that says, just pray hard enough and your troubles will go away. God yeah, promises totally. to step in. And what's the danger? I mean, that feels prosperity gospelish, but help remind people the danger of the belief that says, oh, pray hard enough, believe hard enough, and God's going to take it all away. Yeah, like the the pray it away yeah. type type of, you know, it's a weird way that we speak. We, uh, we take spirituality and use it as an avoidance habit to avoid mm. hard things, right? And the, I think the real difficulty with it is sometimes God does take things away. Yep. But sometimes God doesn't. And then it's one of, you know, one of the, I, I don't mean to do whataboutism here, but I do think it actually fits. Like if we think about prayer globally, like Christians all around the world that are suffering and hurting, starving, you know, not just being persecuted, but being abused, being trafficked. Like you could just think of the horrific situations Christians around the world are in situations of poverty, disease, et cetera. And like, they're not able to just pray it away. And so I right. think it it is uh, a bit privileged. It is a bit self-centered and not God-centered. And then I think it just causes your faith to crumble when... Mm. It's all about, does Jesus change my circumstances or not, right? It also, I think, uses God, and I, I'm guilty of this, like using God as sort of your your PR person, like, yes. God, make sure, I, make sure I don't get in trouble for this thing. Make sure I don't get caught for this thing. Hey, God, you can just like, let's skate over this sin if you don't mind. Like, I just think, and then we're not truly worshiping God as God. We're we're trying to put ourselves in the places, the place of God. So there's some problems with it 
the danger in it is theological, it's spiritual, it's practical, it's emotional. Like there's a lot of layers to why. And at the end of the day, you know, this is what we know from the book of Job. This is what we know through so much of scripture. God gives and God takes away and we praise him through it all. You know, like yeah. that's the call. And I know there's a lot of faiths that focus on kind of naming it and claiming it or believing God for something specifically. I the, the focus then becomes that thing or that answer yeah, right. or whatever, that God removing that thing rather than on Jesus himself. Now, yeah. I will say, talk to God about everything. Pray to God about ask, everything. It's absolutely. Yeah, ask for everything. Like it's this strange paradox of our faith while at the same time you're like, but you're God, I'm not. Yeah, God's goodness somehow doesn't isn't dependent on the thing I'm asking happening, but right. yet He still says, "Ask away." Like I'm, a, you know, just come and like, what's the one parable? Like I love how that one parable is basically like ask so much that it's borderline annoying. Yeah, like, like you ha- like keep knocking. The sh- what does Jesus say? He says that. The guy, I, the guy, the guy finally opened the door because of the shameless audacity he had to mm. keep knocking, and it's like, yeah, that's how we're supposed to pray with shameless audacity. Keep knocking, keep keep asking, but then you have to take that in consideration with the breadth of scripture, which is also Jesus saying, "God, take this cup away from me," and he yep. didn't. You yep. know, it's like, God didn't answer Jesus's prayer in that in that moment. It, it was on yesterday or the day before. I forget. We talked about kind of the seven. That article had like the seven paradigms of life, like the Central seven things. Paradigms. That yeah. And one of those is no matter what, God's good. No like matter I can trust, like God is good yeah. no matter yeah. what. Uh, and I'm going to pray for what I want is on my yes. heart. And yes. but no matter what, whether things happen or not is not the determining factor whether God is good. God is good because yeah. God is good. And so, yeah, uh, there's a pastor that we talk about often named Der- uh, Derwin Gray. He's been on the show before. Um, he's a pastor. Where is he? South Carolina or North Carolina? Every One time the- we, every time we do this, we go South Carolina or North Carolina. I don't know. It's, Carolina. Tra- it's transformation church in the Carolinas. In the Carolinas. <laughs> uh, and uh, Derwin was talking the other day about this exact subject. So we like you to hear other voices. So, you know, we're not making this up. Right. Uh, right. This is a real short clip. Listen to what Derwin Gray said. God's greatest goal is not to get you out of a jam. His greatest goal is to give you the life and righteousness of Christ so that in that jam, you can flourish. That in that problem, you can flourish. That in that brokenness, you can flourish. And what is flourishing? Looking like Jesus. So he said God's ultimate plan is to not get you out of your jam, but to Mm -hmm. give you such a life and righteousness that he used the word flourish within the hard times. And that was an interesting choice of words and why I wanted to play this. Cause Aubrey, I rarely think of flourishing <laughs> in the bad times. I think of at best enduring, right? Like it's at yeah, best totally. an endurance, but don't you, th- I find that interesting that he kind of raised the bar to flourishing in the midst of our struggles. Well, I thought what was almost more interesting to, than that was how he defined flourishing. He defined flourishing as being made into likeness of Christ, being more like Jesus. Yeah. He said flourishing, which is being made more like Jesus. Yeah. So I think if we think of flourishing as like, God's going to give me all the money. God's going to get me out of trouble. God's going to give me the promotion. God's going to, which is a great definition of flourishing. Those are the things I want. You know what I mean? But to go, okay, well, what's the biblical definition of flourishing? We do see it in the old Testament. Jesus 
uh, God, I mean, sorry, talks about, you know, flourishing to the exiles in the Israelite exiles in Babylon, like flourish, make a garden, start a life, marry your children, mm -hmm. like basically like dig in deep and, and have a meaningful life here where you're contributing to the good of others. That's being more like Jesus. And so we have to think of flourishing, I think, in the right context. So when we say, hey, in the midst of pain and suffering, God wants you to flourish, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be like, I'm suffering. This is awesome. God's giving me <laughs> yeah. favor, even though my spouse died or whatever. Like, it's not that. That's twisted and that's weird. And that kind of, I think, misunderstands the heart of God. But if we can yeah. say in this suffering, God is making meaning in this suffering. God is making me more like Jesus in this suffering. God is doing a new thing as hard as it is at the same time. God is transforming me and transforming the world through me because of this pain and making me understand the sufferings of Jesus. If we define that as flourishing then like, amen, let's get ready yep. to suffer. You know? Yep. So I give you an entire minute to explain all of this, but how <laughs> someone's listening right now yeah. and they're they're struggling they're, god yeah. hasn't answered their prayer they're struggling to Ooh. believe god is even yes. good how yeah. do we do this yes um i think one you have to start with just what you said brian to say to god this is really hard i don't know why you're not answering my prayers this mm. makes me really mad and sad i i think if we can't be that honest with god I think we think we can't be that honest with God, but the invitation of God is that God wants all of us. God wants our whole hearts. God wants to transform us from the inside out. And so God wants even that kind of bitter, questioning, frustrated place. And I think it's simply to just, I like thinking of these two steps, acknowledge, invite, acknowledge, invite, acknowledge, mm -hmm. invite. You acknowledge the pain and the heartache and the disappointment you feel. You invite God into it. God, I invite you into this place. Yeah. And then I think it's an, you know, though it's not the magic words acknowledging and inviting it's the act of surrender like here's my heart god please move i'm so desperate for you to move please move and then opening your eyes i think to to see how he's coming towards you with love because the reality is god is always coming towards us with love even in really hard difficult situations some of it is we have to posture ourselves open our eyes and be willing to see how god is moving it can be hard and suffering because suffering creates a choice where you're like i'm going to close off to god i'm going to run away from god or yeah. i'm going to draw closer than i ever have what we find is in that surrender, in that acknowledging and inviting, in that being honest with God, he meets us with great, great supernatural comfort mm. in his presence. That's good. That's good. And ultimately, friends out there who need to hear this, God is good. Like, yeah. uh, what's, the, yeah. what's the old saying? God is good all the time. All the time, God is God good. God is and, good. Yeah. Uh, I, the all the time fits in with the times where we're not feeling it or when mm. things are crumbling, when things are hard. It doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, yeah. But it does mean God's a firm foundation whom we can trust. So a good word. Thank you. Thankful for Derwin Gray as mm -hmm. well. We'll be back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.